We've been uh, looking, for those of you who are new, uh, coming down from the great white north. I've actually seen pictures of snow already. Uh, uh, the great white north. Um, we've been studying together, uh, becoming a New Testament church, not a new normal church. We're basing our entire foundation on what the Bible says the first century church was like. And if we could become the same style of church, have the same characteristics of the first century church, we'll be having a biblical church. We looked, looked six weeks ago now at the foundations of the first century church, how they were set down by Christ. Then we looked at the measure of the first century church, how they were like Christ. We found the power of the first century church was doing the work of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis in our individual hearts. Then we looked at the authority of the first century church, which is the Bible being the only sole authority for both our faith and our practice. That's the word of God. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41 through 47, it's a longer passage, so I've got it on a couple slides. Then they that gladly received his word, this is talking about the beginning of the church, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. I love this phrase. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Who did the work? The Lord did it. The people obeyed and the Lord did the work. I think we learn a lot about the church in this passage uh, that we just read. We must be true to the message of the first century church and to the methods of the first century church. We looked at the doctrine of the first century church, and we saw that it was always based on the inspired word of God. Means certainly change. Uh, our message, our teaching, our doctrine, our methods must always be biblical. That's the doctrine. That can never change. One distinctive feature of the first century church was their obedience to what God's word told them to do. I, I want to tell another story on my wife. That's why I'm really hoping she's not watching. Uh, hopefully she doesn't see this and hopefully she won't kill me. Um, much like Jim, who's told me in the past, Paul, you may be my friend, but if you ever use me as an illustration, I will find you and I will kill you. So this is about you, Jim. Um, uh, to give you a little background, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I ride bikes frequently, and about a year and a half ago, a uh, year ago, last February, um, she was hit by a car while we rode our bikes, uh, right, right, right down the road here, uh, crossing in a pedestrian crossing, a lady pulled out, hit her, knocked her right off her bike while we were in the crosswalk, uh, hurt, damaged her bike, gave her some uh, injuries, she still has some scars from that incident. So you can imagine she's really reluctant and careful around here as we ride bikes together. 
Um, when we're in Michigan, we have found a place where we can ride bikes together called Rails to Trails. And it's like 70 miles of a old railroad bed that they paved and you could ride straight without any, we cross a couple roads and there's stop signs and we can, we can uh, navigate that. But down here, it's really tough. So when she was coming back down this last week, um, I got on Google Earth and I wanted to find a wide straight area we could find with very little places for traffic to come out. So yesterday, um, I took her to one of these places I found. It's actually on, uh, it borders, it's right along Logan Street, which is between Bonita Beach Road and uh, Immokalee Road. And on one side of the road, there is a wide paved walking biking area and it's wide open. There, we counted them yesterday. There's like only two driveways that cut through that five mile section of open path. So we started riding our bikes there yesterday. Now I did warn her yesterday, there's one part that I'm really not sure of because it looks like it's overgrown. And as we got there yesterday, we saw it's a narrow sidewalk and the branches have overgrown the sidewalk and you're, they're hitting you in the face as you're driving through. The other side of the road is a wide path. The only problem is you have to cross the road to get there. And there's a place where all the cars stop. There's a walkway. So we squeeze through this on the way there. And on the way back, as we're riding, her behind me, we're riding along and I said, we're getting to this narrow section. We need to cross the road to go the other side because it's, it's not comfortable. And she said, no, I'm not crossing the road. I said, it's safer if we, you just need to listen to me. Cars stop. No, I'm not. And she passed me, went by me, got to the narrow section, decided to go off the trail and wiped out. Fell down, scraped her knee. And the whole time she said, I'm fine. And she is. She's okay. She's really sore this morning. That's why she was aching in bed last night. Um, but I said, listen, I, I knew the best way. I looked at it. I saw I had a path planned for us. And you went your own way. You thought it was better than I knew. The Bible's the same way. Why do I harp on the Bible? Because it's our path. It tells us which way to go. And we might want to go our own way. I feel safer going this way. This is more accepted. The Bible says go here. And I'm, it's, I'm not sure I want to. That's when we wipe out. When we don't follow the scripture. When we don't follow the Bible. We must examine all things by the Bible. We must always be asking ourselves, am I obeying what I read in scripture? Am I obeying even though I don't fully understand or feel comfortable? The Bible is the only truth we can rely on. The only authentic truth. Nothing else is truth. Nothing else is absolute truth. Not neighborly advice. Not YouTube videos. Not experience. Not psychologist directions. Not even well-written books. Oh, some of those things may look like truth or have portions of truth, but nothing apart from the Bible, has authentic truth. Let's take a peek what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Verse 17 says, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. 
But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen and a publican. We certainly do not find everything that we need to know about church discipline here in these verses, dealing with unruly people. The point I want to make here, though, is that there was a structure of the first century church. This was not something that the disciples just, the apostles just threw together willy-nilly. This was a structure. Christ shared with them that this was an organization that was structured by God. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christ is the foundation. And then he gave the church structure. Notice, there's no organized body for appeal. It's just the church. That's the highest level people can go to. They were to tell the church. This shows me the church is not a national body. The church is a local body of believers. So today, I would like to take a quick peek at the structure of this thing that Christ called the church. What structure did the New Testament church have? What was the structure of that first century church? First of all, the word church comes from the word ecclesia. Uh, it's the Greek word, and I'm not a Greek expert because it's all Greek to me. But ecclesia is the Greek word kaleo, which means to call, with a prefix ek, which means out. Thus the word means the called out ones, people that are called out. It means the called out assembly. The mandate for the structure of the first century church. Christ commanded his disciples to go into all the world and preach what? The gospel. The gospel is the good news. There is bad news. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. Every other Friday I get a paycheck for what I did four weeks ago, because we're way behind when they pay, but I get a paycheck. And every other Friday, I get paid for what I did. We're all sinners. We're all getting a paycheck. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. But the good news is the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news. But we're not to stop there. We're not only to seek just the salvation of the lost. We're to make disciples. We're to establish local churches. This is the mandate that God gives us. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. What a day. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. When we consider this mandate, we must understand that the local church is made up of only redeemed people, only saved. I used to be embarrassed about my testimony. It always started the same thing. I was raised in a Christian home. We went to church every Sunday, every Wednesday night. When I was five years old, I got saved. Boring. I mean, I heard these testimonies about people that, that got saved out of alcoholism and people that weren't car wrecks and people that had near-death experiences. I was raised in a Christian home, got saved when I was five. To me, that sounded boring. But what a testimony of generations. When my mother was a little girl, 
she had a neighbor, the two houses down, used to give neighborhood children candy. Now today we look at that, whoa, whoa. This, she said this was an interesting man because he was tall and he wore a tall black stovetop hat all the time. And she would see him and his wife in these beautiful long flowing dresses get in their car every Sunday and go to church. And he would give them candy. And one Sunday, one Saturday, he invited to take my mother to church, him and his wife. And they took my mother to church. And a few weeks later, my mom got saved. Now, she didn't know it at that time, but that man was my dad's grandfather. They'd never met. And I am proud to say that generations of mine have been saved consistently. My great-grandparents were saved. My grandparents were saved. My parents are saved. All my brothers and I are saved. It's passed down. That's exciting. That's different. That's exciting. Salvation, though, is a personal decision. It's made by every individual in every generation because God does not have grandkids. God only has children. Salvation doesn't pass down. But you're going to find churches where salvation is not a requirement. We're not talking about the congregation. We're not talking about everyone that joins us for worship. People of all generations are welcome to our services. We want them to come hear God's word. We're talking about the structure of the church as Christ set it up. The church, the called out ones, are only those that are saved. Part of this mandate also includes the obedience to Christ in baptism and following the clear teaching of God's word. I remember waiting to get baptized. I must have been about seven years old. It seemed like I waited forever. I, I remember sitting through like one or two different communion services, knowing that I could not take communion because I wasn't baptized. And unless you were baptized, you weren't following the Lord and believers' obedience. So I couldn't take communion then at the church that I went to, and um, I, I couldn't wait to get baptized, to be included in that body of believers. Some churches do not make following Christ and believers' baptism a requirement for their membership. Let's look at the membership of the structure. Acts chapter, two, Acts chapter 9, verse 26 and 27. Well, look at these verses. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, the Apostle Paul, he had just got saved. He essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had, spoke, had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. See that word join? That word join there means to glue or to cement together. Paul, the apostle, found a local body and he wanted to join with them. He wanted to join with them. The apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 4, the apostles are having some difficulty. The apostle John, the apostle Peter are called before the rulers and elders and scribes. Chapter 4 describes to us in the early part of Acts and threatened that they were no longer allowed to preach or teach about Jesus. And in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, it says this, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. 
Notice, there was some group that each of them would report to. They went to their own company. These two apostles were members of their own local congregations of churches. Acts chapter 5. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them. But the dared no man to join himself with them. But the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Strange thing happens here in Acts chapter 5. If you remember the story, Ananias and Sapphira have been struck dead by the power of God. And great fear came upon all the assembly. Not some sort of frightening fear. Not like running from a bear or being struck, stuck outside during a hurricane. That would be fearful. This was a fear of reverence and awe to God. The people understood that it was a very serious matter to join the church. It wasn't just some flippant thing to do. Church membership, the structure of a church, joining a church is a very serious thing. Little is made of membership today. Too little. I, I know people that church hop. You know the ones I'm talking to. They'll come and sit in a congregation and join the church and fellowship with the church for five or six months until somebody says something that offends them. Then they'll hop out of that church. They'll go to the church now down the road and they'll go there for five or six months till somebody offends them. They'll hop to a third church for five or six months. Then they'll come back to the church they started with, say, oh, everything's fine. I was just, I was, I was, and then they'll hop. Doink, 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 doink. Church membership is a serious thing. Let's look at another case of church membership. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. I wrote unto you an epistle, not to company with fornicators. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. Yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for them must ye needs go out of the world. The church here at Corinth is dealing with people in the church who are involved in sexual sin and immorality. Look at verse 9. Not to company with fornicators. Paul says, though, listen, I'm not saying that you can't have contact with these people, any people, or those that covet, or those that extort, or idolaters. In other words, if you're going to, he says, if you're going to get away from all sinners, you're going to have to be out of the world. You're going to be taken away. Paul was explaining there's one thing it is to sin in the world, there's another thing to have sin in the church. It's totally different when the church is in, or when the sin is in the church. Look at the next two verses. But now I have written unto you, not keep company if men, any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or idolater, or railer, or drunkard, or extortioner. With such one, no, not to eat. Those are the people that are in the church. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without do not ye judge them that are within. Paul is making a clear distinction here between those that are without, outside the church, and those that are within the church. And it's vitally important that the testimony of the church membership be upheld. The structure of the church. The apostles were members of their own independent, local, fundamental churches. Baptists, probably. 
God views church membership as a very serious thing. And we have a responsibility to keep our church free from blatant sin. It's our job. Third thing I want to cover really quickly is the metaphors of destruction in the Bible. I want to emphasize that these metaphors, I'm using these metaphors because the Bible uses these metaphors. These aren't mine. This is what the Bible calls the church. They are one-word expressions that the Bible gives to clarify, to explain the structure of the first century church. The first one is the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, it says, For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. I may have told you about this one time, this before, but there was a time when, when uh, we lived on a cabin that was on a lake, and there was quite a distance, about 75 to 100 yards between our cabin, the back porch of our cabin, and the lake. And I remember I was, I was fishing that day, and I had left my fishing gear on the end of the dock, and I could see the rain as it was coming across, and it was dark, and I could see the lightning, and I could see the, it was getting, I didn't want my fishing stuff to get wet. So I was barefoot, I was just in my shorts, and I was running as fast as I could towards the beach to get my fishing gear, and I forgot that our horseshoe stakes were in the middle of the yard. And my big toe collided with a horseshoe stake at a dead run. And uh, let me just put it this way. My big toe hurt for a while. Um, you know how you lose a toenail once in a while? They'll fall off. This was gone. I mean, it was just gone at that moment. It hurt a lot. I, my whole body ached. It did. I couldn't chew food without pain. It hurt. That's the body of Christ. Every part of the body is important. We need to treat every member of the body the way every member should be treated. Verse 22 and 23 of the same chapter. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. What was the last time you thanked God for your gallbladder? Those that don't have it anymore, I bet, are thankful they had it when they did. We don't think about the parts of the body that aren't there, but every part is necessary. Every part of the body of Christ is necessary. Do you know what I think the strongest part of the body of Christ is? Not the people that get up on the platform. Not the people that clean the church. I think of those little old lady prayer warriors that pray on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And then everybody else gets up and does their thing on Sunday. They're, they're one of those insignificant ones? No. They're an important member of the body of Christ. When we have a church like God wants us to have, then we suffer together. We rejoice together like a complete body, like the body of Christ. The second one, God uses. The household of God. Ephesians 2.19 now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Woo! 
and of the household of God. When it comes to value in my family, I'm not more important than my wife. I'm not more important than my children. Which, which tribe of Israel held more value to God? Which of the 12? None. You know, the priests, they had all the names of all 12 tribes on them. All 12 tribes listed on their breastplate. So that, as Pastor was saying this morning, so that my household can function, somebody's got to lead, though. But then when somebody's ill, we all help carry the load. We all care. We all forgive. That's our household. We don't divide. We're the household of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible says we're the household of God. Third one, the building of God. Ephesians 2.21, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. We are the building of God. Uh, in a building, parts are of little value when they're separated. I, I love our group. I love our group all summer long. But when the rest come back, like now they're coming back, those are pieces we've missed. Those are pieces. My parents had a friend, Mrs. Miller, and um, I remember she had a piece of property, a house, she said, that she wanted my dad to look at. My dad was a contractor to see if he could help fix, uh, finish. And um, so my dad drove out there. And this was a framed-in building sitting on like 10 acres in the woods of northern Michigan. And I remember seeing the cement uh, blocks as the basement. The walls were up. The roof was on, and, and there were windows. But the windows were sitting leaned up against the building. They'd been, the openings for the window had been open for months. Snow had gotten in. Animals had gotten in because the windows were separated from where they were supposed to be. The scripture says we're like a building, and every piece is, needs to fit together. And when we're not where we belong, if we're not doing our job, that leaves an opening to the entire world to come in and affect our building. We are, Bible says we are a building and we are fit joined to, fitly joined together. For whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto edifying of itself in love. We got to be fit, joined together, fitly joined together. I love the local church. I love being a member of Gospel Baptist Church. I'm willing to adhere. I'm willing to obey the doctrine that we find in the Bible. There may be a time when you have to find a new local church. I hope not. I hope this is yours until we both die or raptured. But there may be a time when you can't come here anymore and you have to find another church. Make sure it adheres to the Bible. Make sure it's an independent assembly. Make sure they deal with all matters and everything to deal with the assembly biblically. Not simply on paper but in practice. 
That way, that way we'll have the structure of the first century church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, thank you for the example that the apostles set down for us in their membership of the church. We're thankful for the metaphors that you gave us to tell us how we're to act as a structure of biblical believers together. Father, I am grateful that you brought me here to this church. I'm grateful for the opportunity you gave each of us to serve in this church. We pray that you'll help us continue to be part of a unified body of Christ together. In your name we pray, amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.